Bridgetown Church. Happy Sabbath to all of you. Today we end our vision series. I actually have the weekend off, so I snuck over to the coast for a few days to get a mini vacation in to kind of attempt to get a little bit of my soul back before the fall push. But I just want to introduce you to our very special guest, Daryl Johnson from the Way Church in Vancouver, BC. Now, I have been wanting to introduce you to Daryl for over a year now. He was on the schedule to come and teach over the summer, but then COVID hit and the border between our nations was closed and everything was off. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. And so we have yet to do this, I think eight months into the pandemic, but we asked him to kind of pre-record a teaching, email it down for us to play a recording of, because I just really want you to receive the gift of the Spirit of God through his life and his story. Daryl is somebody, he's not a celebrity per se, though he is very well known. He was a longtime pastor on the West Coast down in Hollywood. He's American. Years ago, moved up to Vancouver, BC to become the professor of preaching at Regent Seminary. He was there with Eugene Peterson on a number of other luminaries. He's really kind of of that generation, just the best that we have, kind of a pastor's pastor. And over the last few years, a number of us kind of younger, I said tongue-in-cheek, I'm 40 years old, but younger-ish leaders around the Pacific Northwest and beyond have more and more been looking to him as kind of a North Star of the kind of pastor, and in his case, husband and father and grandfather father and man of God that we want to grow and mature into. He is a 70-something who is compassionate and wise and intelligent and a gift and full of strength and vitality and at peace. And he's kind of the kind of person I want to become when I grow up, so to speak, or when I, God willing, continue to mature. And I, I more and more am under the conviction, and a lot of the recent neuroscience stuff is saying this from a secular perspective, that one of the acute pain points that we're feeling as a generation is really we're a generation without elders. There's such a dearth of older women and men that we have to look up to and model our life after who are not just old, but who are mature. Not all people age. Nobody matures without aging, but a lot of people age without mature, as we all know. And so Daryl is that. He is an elder, both at a literal level and a metaphoric level. And now in his 70s, kind of as he's winding down his, quote, career, he is now planting a church with Jason Ballard, who's been here to teach before, who's very young. He's a friend of mine. You know him from Alpha. He's a wonderful kind of church planter in downtown Vancouver, BC. And Daryl is planting with Jason and a team right in the center of the city, preaching once a month. Can you imagine the gift of having somebody like that? So all that to say, I just want you to be around him. He's teaching from Daniel. I specifically said, would you address the upcoming election and just get us ready, not at a political level, but at a spiritual level and an emotional level as we move into the weeks to come. You were here, I said to him, like through the 60s and the 70s, social unrest is not new to you and you have such a robust biblical theology of history and politics. Would you just pastor us and get and posture us and get us ready for the coming few weeks? So here is Daryl. Please just let him minister to you. Please give a warm virtual clap, whatever welcome to Daryl Johnson from Vancouver, BC. 2020 has been a hard year for all of us, uh, but in the midst of it, there have been signs of grace. And for me, a chief sign of grace has been the Lord bringing me into relationship with John Mark. I will long remember 
the conversations John, you and I had on that airplane ride from Vancouver to Edmonton, and then in the hotel lobby before you took off to fly back from Edmonton. I'm grateful for our growing friendship, and, and I, I wish that I could be there with you in person. And greetings to the members of, of Bridgetown. Uh, we in Vancouver have been praying for you, especially as we watch the news of things happening in Portland, and been praying that you've been given grace and wisdom and strength uh, to understand what it is you need to be doing at that time. I look forward to the day when, um, in John's invitation, I get to come and spend time with you in Bridgetown. If you're like me, you know how easy it is to lose perspective, especially in times like these, when it feels like everything around us is changing, when it feels like we're on the verge of chaos. Every day we're bombarded by images of unrest and upheaval and turmoil, not knowing for sure which voices are speaking the truth. All of it coming on top of the changes taking place in our own personal lives, generating deep anxiety, if not outright fear in our souls. All of it posing questions like, what in the world is going on? Where is it all going? And, and what are we supposed to do right now? Perspective. We stand in need, desperate need, of perspective. Years ago, I heard a story about a young boy who went to a scary movie with some older boys. And some of the scenes in the movie were truly frightening, causing the older boys to slump down in their seats. As the movie unfolded, the older boys became more and more terrified. But they noticed that the younger boy, although shaken by what he saw, did not slump down in his seat. Why? They asked him in a whisper. Because, he whispered back, I saw the preview. I know where it's all going. I know how the movie ends. Well, I invite you now to watch with me one of the most compelling previews ever shown. I invite you to open your Bibles to the document we call the Book of Daniel, and in particular to the second chapter of the Book of Daniel, where we are given what many scholars call a theology of history, or better yet, a prophetic vision of history. In the second chapter of Daniel, we are, as it were, taken into the secret council of the one who overrules history. We're not shown the whole movie. In the nature of things, that is not possible. But we are shown crucial scenes which sketch for us the course and climax of history. We're shown enough so that as the drama continues to unfold, and even when we go into even scarier times, we do not slump down in our seats as the other girls and boys do who have not seen the preview. The event relayed in the second chapter of Daniel takes place in the sixth century BC. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a terrifying dream, as I would imagine most world leaders have from time to time. The king's advisors are unable to give him any comfort. One of his advisors, a man named Arioch, tells the king about Daniel, 
one of the Jews living in the capital city who might be of help. We pick up the story at verse 24 and reading through verse 45. Daniel 2, 24 through 45. Hear the word of God. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living person, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of this statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the stone that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the stone cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A stone that broke the iron, 
the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Let us pray. Living God, we give you thanks for preserving this document for us. And now I pray in your mercy and grace that you would take us beyond the words into the grand reality it declares as never before. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me briefly <clears throat> review the historical context in which this preview was first run. As, as already noted, it was the sixth century before the birth of Jesus. Daniel the Jew is living in Babylon, the capital city of the most powerful and influential empire at that time. Babylon was located in what is now modern-day Iraq. Daniel and the Jewish community, of which he was a part, were living in Babylon not by their own wills. They had not immigrated there. They had been deported there by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, after the Babylonian army had decimated Jerusalem, bringing it under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. By the way, you might know that the late Saddam Hussein thought of himself as a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, he thought of himself as a reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And you may know that he initiated a project of rebuilding ancient Babylon. And on the bricks of the walls around the construction site, he chiseled the words to King Nebuchadnezzar in the reign of Saddam Hussein. Well, back to the 6th century BC. Daniel was not only a resident alien, he was a hostage, a political hostage. But amazingly, he was living and serving in the royal palace. Imagine that. Daniel the foreigner occupying a high-ranking position in Nebuchadnezzar's government. You need to read the first chapter of Daniel to find out how that happened. At one point during those years of exile and captivity for Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar went through a period of restless nights. Night after night after night, he was troubled by what to him was a terrifying dream. So he did what he did on other times when he experienced emotional and mental stress. He called for the Magi, the wise men of Babylon. He brought in his magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, as Daniel calls them, who were trained for just such times. They were experts in dream analysis. Archaeologists have unearthed a number of Chaldean dream manuals. And the manuals will list various dreams and then the events that immediately follow them. They were arranged systematically for easy access. Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin tells us that since these books had to try to cover every possible eventuality, they became inordinately long. Only the expert could find his way through them and even he had to know the dream before he could search for the nearest possible parallel. So, the wise men come to the king, dream analysis, books in hand, magical incantations ready to go. But this time, the rules have changed. In addition to wanting the wise men to interpret his dream, Nebuchadnezzar wants them to first tell him what he dreamt. 
The dream is so disturbing that only a true interpretation could bring him peace of mind. He did not want to be falsely pacified, as powerful leaders often are by their advisors. So to ensure an accurate interpretation, he demands that the wise men first tell him the dream. The wise men of Babylon were unable to meet the king's demand. So the king was very angry. So angry that he threatened to kill the whole lot of them. I mean, what do I pay you guys for anyway? A crisis of huge proportion. The accumulated skill and insight of Babylon's finest could not meet the need. For all their magnificent libraries and research centers, the wise men themselves had to admit the limits of their wisdom. Enter Daniel. Hearing of the king's decree to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, which, by the way, would have included Daniel and his friends, Daniel approaches the king, requests a little more time, and promises that he will return to declare the king's dream and its interpretation. Now, that was quite an act of faith, <laughs> to, to be able to address such a monarch and then to promise the interpretation of a dream which he had not yet heard. Daniel goes to his apartment in his royal palace, calls some of his friends to come and meet him in prayer. They get down on their knees, and in response to their prayers, the living God plays Nebuchadnezzar's dream on the screen of Daniel's mind, and then impresses on Daniel's mind the meaning of the dream. Daniel gets up from his knees, runs back to the king's palace. As he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is careful to give credit where credit is due. Daniel's ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream was not due to any special spiritual expertise or any psychological skill or any academic learning, as valuable and as valued as those are. Daniel's insight was the, the result of divine revelation penetrating insight given by the God who, as Daniel says, reveals mysteries. Oh, Lord, please do that for us in our time. Now, it is important to know that Daniel 2 is written in Aramaic. It's a sister language of Hebrew. Daniel 1, like most prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, is written in Hebrew. But Daniel 2 is in Aramaic. In fact, half of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7, are written in Aramaic. Now, why two different languages in the same book? And why the shift here in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Well, various interpretations have been given. And the best, in my opinion, is that chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel were meant to be heard not only by the Jews who were living in exile, but by all the peoples of that day. Thus, they're written in the language of international exchange. Aramaic was the English of the 6th century before Christ, widely used throughout the ancient Near East. Now, what does this mean? It means that the dream and its interpretation were meant to be heard not only by the folks gathering in the synagogue, but also those by those who wield power in the halls of government. What God reveals in Daniel 2 is meant to be heard not only in the private religious realm, 
but also in the public secular realm. God means it to be heard not only in the sanctuaries of our churches, but in Congress and the White House in Washington, in Parliament in Ottawa, and in the People's Hall in, the, in, in, in Beijing. Now to the dream and its interpretation. Imagine dreaming that disturbing dream. Imagine night after night seeing that huge, dazzling, awesome statue standing before you, a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and partly clay. And imagine night after night watching that little stone cut without human hands, verses 34 and 45, striking the feet of the statue, causing the whole structure to fall into a pile of rubble, rubble so fine that it blew away. It, was, it could be blown away with no trace of its existence left. And imagine night after night seeing that little stone which struck the statue slowly become a mountain so big that it filled the whole earth. Now, the question is, what caused Nebuchadnezzar to dream that terrifying dream? Dreams usually emerge out of our subconscious. What in Nebuchadnezzar's subconscious gave birth to that disturbing dream? Well, had he gone to his psychoanalyst, she would, had she read Carl Jung in, in, in any way, immediately she would have recognized a profound sense of insecurity. She might have told the king that the statue represented himself and his huge empire. She might have then suggested that the reason he kept seeing the statue fall was that he feared an attack from another kingdom or that he feared his empire could no longer hold together because of its diverse factions, hence feet of mixed material. But the fact of the matter is, at that time, Nebuchadnezzar had no visible reason to feel threatened or insecure. He was enormously wealthy and powerful. He was well respected by and popular with the citizens of Babylon. 98% approval ratings had the latest polls. No one was challenging his authority. And his armies could crush any invader. Yet for all of his wealth and fame and power, Nebuchadnezzar was deeply insecure. Why? Why an insecurity dream in the subconscious of a ruler who ought to feel very secure? Answer, grace. God's grace. God was playing that dream in Nebuchadnezzar's subconscious. The living God was speaking to the king who ignored him. <laughs> Imagine that. The living God had not washed his hands of that secular, humanist, narcissist, megalomaniac. God was seeking to bring Nebuchadnezzar into a more accurate and redemptive view of himself and history. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Daniel says to the king, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Daniel claims, that the tyrant's disturbing dream is from God and that it is all about the course and climax of history. 
So Daniel reveal, reviews the dream with the king and then straightforwardly spells out its interpretation. Now, had I been in Daniel's shoes, <laughs> I would have taken a deep breath and then prayed for my life as I began the interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings. As one commentator says, a little flattery never hurts. <laughs> Daniel's careful to add, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Verse 37, given, putting the king in his place. Jesus would say the same thing to Pilate. When that ruler claimed ultimate authority, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given from above. Daniel then identifies the four different parts of that huge, awesome statue as four outstanding and different human-made empires. Then Daniel begins to declare the mystery. Each empire will run its course before the coming of another empire. Another kingdom, which will put an end to all those kingdoms and itself will endure forever. Verse 45, forever. The first kingdom, symbolized by the head of gold, Daniel specifically identifies as Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. And I'm sure the king felt quite proud being conveyed in such a grand way. But I wonder how he felt as Daniel continued the interpretation. For you see, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that although his empire he was building was impressive and mighty, it was finite. Its time on the stage of history was comparatively short. His empire would grow, and then it would give way to, and to some extent, shape three empires to follow. Each of them would be impressive and mighty. But one day, however, it would become clear that this whole structure was on shaky foundation, on feet of crumbling clay. And one day, the whole structure would collapse. But that is not the big point of the preview. The fall of that structure, the fall of exalted human kingdoms would not come because of the feet of clay. That is not the mystery. That fact we could deduce ourselves. Empires built on faulty foundations inevitably collapse. The collapse of the old Soviet Union, for example, was not hard to predict. It takes no special wisdom to protect the, predict the collapse of an ideology built on false premises. The present unraveling of Western civilization is no surprise either. Empires built by rejecting the presence of God eventually fall apart. That's not the mystery. Here's the mystery. Babylon would fall not simply because of its inherent weakness. It would fall because of the coming of another kingdom, another kingdom represented by the little stone. Here is the mystery, the whole point of the preview. The fall would, become, would come because Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and the empires that followed stood in the way of and blocked the progress of another kingdom which comes to fill the future. You see, that's what finally explains the king's deep insecurity. There was indeed something out there, something from beyond that was threatening Nebuchadnezzar's powerful empire, something above and outside the history he could see with his eyes. There was a real 
objective reason to feel insecure. His empire and those that succeeded him stood in the way of and blocked the progress of a hidden kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, Daniel did not identify the kingdoms represented by silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Some scholars think that the silver represents the Median Empire, bronze, the Persian Empire, and iron, the clay, and clay, the Greek. Other scholars think that the silver represents the combined Medo-Persian Empire, bronze, the Greek Empire, and iron and clay, the Roman. That's the option I take. God is telling Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel that Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome would all run their course. Then, in the days of that fourth empire, in the days of the Roman, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that is what was happening in the early 30s of the first century. That is what is happening at Christmas and Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost. In the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, God was setting up that other kingdom. Remember what John the Baptist came preaching? He could sense there was something cataclysmic in the air. And what was the one word he thundered over and over again? Repent. Repent. Turn around. Why? For the kingdom of heaven, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. And what was the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he began preaching? Repent. Turn around. Why? The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Perspective. In Jesus of Nazareth, the everlasting kingdom is breaking into history and altering history. Jesus is this little stone cut without human hands. His kingdom is the stone that strikes the statue and becomes the great mountain that fills the earth. In the preview of history, played on the screen of Nebuchadnezzar's subconscious, we discover that the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has consequences not only for the private religious sphere of life, but also for the public secular sphere of life. You see, as I like to put it, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news not only because it declares the forgiveness of sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news not only because we are justified before the throne of the universe. And not only because it offers us the gift of adoption into the family of God, the gift of the indwelling spirit, and the gift of eternal life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news because in Jesus, another kingdom is breaking into the kingdoms of this world. A kingdom that invades and transforms the private personal realms of life, but also invades and transforms the public corporate realms of life. Jesus comes to save our souls and then to rule as king. He comes to rescue us from all bondage and then to call the whole world into a wholly different world order, an order of justice and mercy and light and love and healing and wholeness, a kingdom of reconciliation and resurrection. The little stone cut without human hands has come 
and keeps on rolling, slowly but surely overcoming any and everything that blocks its way until one day it fills the whole earth. That is the mystery of history first unveiled to Daniel and through him to the king of one of history's most powerful empires. Well, I think you can already see that Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream has powerful implications for understanding this present moment. And let me hold before us just five implications. Ready? First, we now know the main reason for turmoil in the world. We now know the main reason for turmoil in the world. The main reason for the upheavals of history is not the moral weaknesses of human society. The main cause of upheavals in history is not the social and economic factors we can observe, nor is the main cause demonic forces at work behind the scenes. In his superb work on Daniel, biblical scholar Ronald Wallace shows us that the main cause of upheaval in history is the progress of the hidden kingdom of Jesus, which presses in on our present world from beyond. Jesus' kingdom keeps on invading human kingdoms, but keeps on being resisted and rejected by those kingdoms. The turmoil in our world is fundamentally due to human resistance to King Jesus' kingdom of light and justice and wholeness. Second implication, the turmoil will continue until the resistance ends. The turmoil will continue until the resistance ends. Unrest will mark the world until humanity lays down its resistance to Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. I think an Arab scholar does a better job translating that. This is how he puts it. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom is preached and everyone because of it is under pressure. God's new world order is pressing in on the world and everyone, whether they realize it or not, is under pressure from this new world order. The pressure is relieved when we lay down resistance and give in to this kingdom of grace. Now what is true in the world is true in our private lives. The turmoil in our lives signals that some sort of resistance is in our soul. Somewhere I'm fighting the kingdom and the turmoil will be there until I surrender. Third implication. It's the positive side of the second. Turmoil is a prelude to further inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Turmoil is a prelude to further inbreaking of the kingdom of God. I learned this while serving and living in the Philippines from 1985 to 1989. We arrived in Manila in September of 1985, and it was a time of great tension. You could feel this tension everywhere. It, sometimes it, it was very frightening. People who spoke out against President Ferdinand Marcos, who by that time had become a corrupt dictator, were disappearing. Even newspaper columnists were turning up dead. The tension was running very high. It was then that the Lord showed me that all this turmoil was a prelude for a new move of the kingdom. And he gave me a way to picture it. Beneath, beneath the earth's crust are tectonic plates. 
And the Lord seemed to suggest that his kingdom, ordinarily hidden, is like one of those tectonic plates, ever-present, ever-moving, ever-pressing. Now, sometimes the tectonic plates butt up against one another and you have an earthquake. Once in a while, one of those plates will lunge underneath the other and you have a volcano. So the kingdom of God, ever-present, ever-moving, ever-pressing, pressing, 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 and in the pressing, heating things up. I found myself saying to the people of Manila again and again, do not be afraid of the turmoil. It is a prelude to more kingdom coming. Do you see the implication? The turmoil in our lives is not a sign of the absence of God's rule. It's quite the opposite. It's a sign of the presence of God's rule, pressing up against the reign of other gods to whom we have bowed. The turmoil is not due to God having forgotten us. It's due to God bothering us. The turmoil in 2020 is not because God has forgotten us. He's bothering us, just as he did Nebuchadnezzar. The turmoil in both the private and public realm is a prelude to the release of more kingdom life. Fourth implication. It's a hard one to hear, but it's critical. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream warns us. It warns us that it is possible to waste our lives. It's possible to waste our talents and our time, our energy and our money on that which finally does not count. The preview warns us that whatever is not consistent with the kingdom of Jesus, whatever cannot be taken up and incorporated into the kingdom of Jesus, will one day reveal, be revealed for what it is, so much chaff which the wind will blow away, leaving no trace of its existence. Do you know the name Charles Colson? This, this dates me. Charles Colson. He was assistant to uh, President Richard Nixon of the United States during the so-called Watergate crisis. He slowly became troubled by his blind allegiance to a president he could see increasingly out of touch with reality. During that time, Colson found Jesus, or as I should say, Jesus found Colson. And in his book, Life Sentence, he tells of a trip that he and his family took to Rome. He writes, we stood on the very ground where the Roman Senate, the world's mightiest political institution, met to erect the laws which would shape the history of the world. As I stood snapping photographs, my mind flashed back to the Roosevelt Room in the White House, a few steps across from the narrow hallway from the president's Oval Office. At 8 o'clock each morning, a dozen of us, the president's senior aides, had gathered around the antique mahogany table, its polished surface reflecting the serious, intense expressions of men who believed the destiny of humankind was in their hands. The decisions we must make today, Henry Kissinger would often say, will, reflect, will affect the whole future course of world history. We believed it just as the Roman senators dressed in their flowing togas believed it nearly 2,000 years ago. Yet here sat their once majestic form in dust piles of stone and rubble. Would even this much be left of the Roosevelt Room, I wondered, two centuries, let alone two millennia from now on? Colson continues. At home several days later, I was sorting through a stack of photographs taken in Europe. Wendell, my oldest son, just graduated from Princeton and working in a housing construction outside Washington, was looking over my shoulder. What's that one, Dad? That's the remains of the Roman Senate. Wow, 
Imagine that. Looks like the construction site where I work. Wendell took a big swallow from his soft drink and walked away. For me, the imagery was suddenly overpowering, vividly underscoring the unsettling thoughts which had assaulted me on the plane trip home. The only lasting kingdom is God's. Daniel 2.35, not a trace of the other kingdoms was found. Boy, it's a hard word to hear, but it is what the preview reveals. It is possible to spend our lives serving an empire which in the end is forgotten. Fifth implication, flip side of the fourth. The preview encourages us. We never waste our lives living for the kingdom of God. Try as they might, no human kingdom, political or personal, secular or ecclesiastical, liberal or conservative, east or west, Marxist or capitalist, can finally block the coming of King Jesus' reign. Which means we never seek the kingdom of God in vain. We never pray your kingdom come in vain. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and what Daniel proclaimed in the interpretation is that the coming progress and triumph of the kingdom of the little stone is inevitable. One day, the little stone rejected and resisted will be the mountain that fills the whole earth. And it was this preview, this revelation of the mystery of history, which gave Desmond Tutu, long before he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the courage to walk into the office of the Minister of Law and Order, into the office of the man who was given the power to enforce the policy of apartheid and say, Mr. Minister, we must remind you that you are not God. You are just a man. One day your name shall be a mere scribble on the pages of history, while the name of Jesus Christ shall live forever. I preached Daniel's preview in Manila in the midst of all that, that tension on the last Sunday of November, 1985, Christ the King Sunday. Unknown to me that day, were sitting in the sanctuary two men from Washington, D.C. One, a CIA agent, and the other a consultant from an image-making firm in Washington, D.C., who had been hired by Ferdinand Marcos to change his image in the Western press. During the choir anthem after the sermon, unknown to me until later in the week, the image maker began to shake inside and outside, as he said, something that he had never experienced before. And he said that he heard God speak to him. He said he heard God's actual speaking to him. When you meet President Marcos tomorrow, all you are to do is read Daniel 2 to him. The, in, the image maker, accompanied by the CIA agent, did it. And three months later, Mr. Marcos was gone. Perspective. I have seen the preview. I know how the movie ends. Nothing, nothing finally stands in the way of the advancing reign of the crucified and risen carpenter from Nazareth. Nothing, nothing 
nothing. 